Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, welcome. Welcome to The Nose. I hope uh, we can uh, make you happy with this episode. That's what we're here to do for The Nose. I mean, usually, is to make you happy. We have some, you know, mildly serious things to talk about, but mostly we want to make you happy. So we'll make you maybe a little bit unhappy at the beginning with some kind of almost more business news about the world of entertainment, about a decision Warner Movies has made. Uh, We'll move from that, though, to the mysterious monolith in the desert. Well, now it's three monoliths. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and who knows? There could be a fourth monolith going up somewhere right now, even as I speak. Uh, and then uh, towards the, the middle of the show, we will talk about The Undoing, which is on HBO Max. It's uh, Nicole Kidman. It's Hugh Grant. I mean, you, you know, right away, you're, you can't go all the way wrong with those. Uh, so, but, and it's a plot that we've probably seen before, but uh, there's much to say about it. We'll just... Uh, We'll leave it there. So uh, who is going to do the saying, you may ask? Uh, well, we are fortunate to have with us today two of our favorite panelists. And also, they kind of now have their own podcast with yet another panelist. Uh, and well, I'm sure we'll reference that. Uh, Rebecca Castellani handles social media marketing and event planning for Quiet Corner Communications. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance, and more besides. Uh, and they are both co-hosts uh, with also Tarina, Teresa Kramer, also of The Nose, of The Big Little Podcast, which you can find at thebigglittlepodcast.com and on iTunes and everywhere else that you usually find a podcast. Okay, so let's uh, talk about this uh, rather interesting decision by Warner Brothers. They have basically said that in 2021, when they release a movie, they'll release it to the movie theaters, but they'll also release it to HBO Max because, in fact, it's all the same thing from a corporate point of view anyway. But uh, they are they are moving away from the the decision, at least in this country, with our lousy COVID control. They are making moving away from the idea that you try to have you know a real blockbuster uh, series of weekends if you can in the movie theaters before you let people watch it on their home theaters. So, uh, Rebecca, get us going on this. I mean, obviously, the for the like the eighty fifth time we're having a conversation <laughs> saying is this the death knell of watching movies in the movie theater. I feel like I've had that conversation too many times for it to ever be true, although we are in very unusual circumstances right now. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'm hearing myself. Sorry. So the last movie I saw was The Way Back for the Nose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember sitting in the theater kind of feeling like, is this the last movie I'm ever going to see? <laughs> like the pandemic was <laughs> about to hit and it was very... Uh, Odd, but I remember thinking I'm not as sad as I thought I would be. Like, I really thought that it was going to be this deep grief, but I kind of feel like what the pandemic has done is forced the innovation that maybe some of these systems have been missing for many years. I mean, these kind of are like the stalwart systems going to a movie, seeing a movie. And when a global catastrophe happens, it forces all of these institutions to be, you know, become nimble and innovative. My personal background is in the music industry, and I've really been saying since 2018 that the music industry needs to be overhauled. And COVID has certainly accelerated that process. 
So while there's some people that are kind of hand-wringing over this, you do have some of these newer institutions coming up, taking the place and doing some really interesting things in the space. So I am honestly kind of excited to see how the, our relationship with consuming movies changes. I don't think COVID's going away anytime soon. And I think when we do have a vaccine, there's a high likelihood there'll be other things down the line. So I really do think this is something we're going to have to think about in macro terms and not just the knee jerk, like, oh, gosh, what a bummer. We can't go to the movies anytime soon. I think it's going to change our whole relationship with this content. I think what streaming has been doing with playing with some of the interaction with content, whether that is, you know, some of these choose your own adventure things that Netflix is petitioning, it's none of it's perfect yet, but it's interesting. So I'm tentatively interested. So before I let Carolyn speak, uh, I should <laughs> at least preface it by saying that for years now, Carolyn has wondered why movie, movie companies insist on making you go to movie theaters <laughs> to watch their movies. This is kind of a strange conversation for her to be having uh, at this point, uh, other than obviously, Carolyn, your eagerness for all the other entertainment companies to fall in line and stay there forever. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I have wondered for years, not only why they force you to go to the movie theater, but then why I have to go to the movie theater and see something I don't want to see for this show. Shots <laughs> um, fired. Yeah. No, I. so I am excited about this as somebody who really strongly dislikes going to the movies for reasons that I feel like I have shared so many times on this show, um, many of them absolutely ridiculous and uh you know, including my anxiety about having to go to the bathroom and missing something good. Um, my, uh, you know, just kind of hatred for feeling like trapped in there when it's like a bad movie. You can't just like turn it off and walk away. I mean, you, I guess you could get up and walk out, but it feels annoying if you spent the like 15 to $20 to go. Um, so, I mean, I'm kind of excited about this because I love the idea that if I want to watch a movie... I have loved during this pandemic being able to see anything that was supposed to come out, being able to watch it. And uh, I feel like I get more excited about it because I, I guess it, it feels more enjoyable to watch it at home. That being said, where I'm scared as a performer, how this mm. is going to trickle down with live performance uh, as I gear up to live stream Nutcracker Sweet and Spicy this year. I mean, we're doing a stream of last year's video. I'm just hoping that live performance doesn't suffer a similar fate and that people uh, don't want to go and see live live theater and live dance and live comedy the way that they used to, that they'll start enjoying seeing it this way. So I'm concerned about that angle, like that kind of uh, connection of people not wanting to, people like me, not wanting to uh, go and do things. It's okay when I don't want to go to a movie, but I, I want other people to go and see the stuff that I'm in and support me. One so of I'm us was going to point this out, uh, Rebecca <laughs> or I was going to point out the, this the, the slight paradox in what you're saying. No, so, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, uh, yes, okay, I'll always do be, be the first one to do it. Um, so, Rebecca, I want to go back to something that you were saying and, and just maybe uh, get you to expand on it a little bit more. I've been thinking about this lately. Partly, be, not even in this context so much, but because of so many things that we can get delivered to our house in kind of an eye blink, you know, and, and it makes us, I, I'm 
old enough to remember the days where you might have to go to five or six stores looking for something that you wanted. (laughs) And it didn't it didn't seem like a crazy thing, you know, that you would go to several different stores looking for something. Uh, And and I do feel as though one of the things that's happening is these little granules, these tiny little specks of humanity that are involved when somebody hands you a bag in a store and says something to you or. You know, when Mr. Bean wraps up your jewelry that you're giving not to your wife, but to, to your hot secretary, you know, that all that stuff is just going away in, in a way that I find a little bit alarming. I mean, I'm almost as reclusive as Carolyn, but um, but, you know, I mean, and 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 Rebecca, you've been in this business in, in a different way from Carolyn for a long time. And, and I, I just wonder what happens when they make everything so easy. Yeah, I mean, I think there is the idea of intent and tradition and social experiences that we want to share together. That's never going to go away. Uh, I I think that that's why, you know, people are so desperate to have concerts come back and movie theaters come back is it's less about your individual viewing experience and more about being in a collective and experiencing something with others. And I don't think streaming is ever going to be able to replicate that. You know, this is it's the same argument that Zoom is not a worthy substitute for sitting in your living room with someone. That physical connection, you cannot replicate unless you have physical spaces for people to gather. So in some ways, I think that that won't that need won't go away. It's just whether we can do it or not feasibly, given the world we're living in at the moment and how some of this technology is going to change to replicate that. I mean, VR is, you know, what the music industry is focused on right now. And that's actually been something the music industry has been pivoting towards for a while now. But how to really make it not seem like, you know, the hokey hologram of Tupac on a stage and feel like I'm sitting in the living room with Brandy Carlisle has been doing these uh, live streams where she sits outside around her fire with her backup singers and singing songs. And that's the closest I felt to feeling that same connection you feel when you're at a live performance because it really felt intimate and personal and intimate and a personal in a way that concerts don't. So I think that's kind of maybe where this is going to have to go is that there are new ways to deliver our entertainment that look completely different from a movie or a concert. And it might be that we see more things become television shows simply because that's a easier thing to distribute in the world we're in. I, I'm not. I, I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting. That's for sure. I think to point out that the hokey hologram of Tupac is the, a new Christmas movie on Netflix this year. So, <laughs> of course. Though, um, so, so, you know, I mean, I guess the other thing that I, I'm I'm just going to say this, and I think we'll pivot towards the monolith. Um, but you know, we've actually, obviously, as I was kind of hinting at, done a worse job uh, with controlling the pandemic than most countries. Uh, and even as Europe has gone through a resurgence, they're now bending their curves down. Um, you know, this is maybe another way in which we become less important in international culture and the release of movies. And I mean, a lot of things that have been done in the past with us first in mind as an audience and a market uh, may in fact be done for even more for other people uh, if we can't get our act together to do something as simple as go to a movie theater once in a while. So uh, more to come on that. Time to talk about the monolith. Uh, I will (laughs) simply set this up as best I can, although we're going to lean heavily on Carolyn Payne here because she (laughs) down the rabbit hole uh, on this. But uh, on November 18th, a um, monolith uh, was discovered, kind of a silver 
rectangle, three-dimensional rectangle, whatever that is, a rhomboid? I don't know. Uh, Was (laughs) discovered uh, in the Utah desert. Uh, Another one was discovered in Romania, um, where it was immediately immediately chopped up and used for fuel. Uh, (laughs) And uh, right around the same time, the Utah monolith disappeared. Uh, The Romanian monolith has now disappeared. There's a California monolith. Um, uh, Carolyn, what's happening? Explain (laughs) this. What is going on here? Uh, I don't don't know what's happening. And I truthfully spent the better part of last night when I should have been asleep going down a very deep and dark and disturbing rabbit hole involving these monoliths. I I can't say this word. So first of all, we have that going on. Um, Apparently, monoliths just gives me a lisp. So we're going to have to bear with me here. Don't even even audition for the remake of 2001 because they're not going to cast you. You No, they're not going to cast me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So basically what what we're dealing with is there are, as you said, the three. And now it's this conspiracy theory and all of these pontifications of what these mean. Um, people, I, the, the, the obvious jump to, uh, because of like 2001, uh, is, uh, alien presence, which then brought out all of the, uh, hyper Christians who are, who have, uh, taken, they want to tear down the monolith because, or they did in, I believe this was the California one, uh, cause they don't want illegal aliens from outer space. It's this crazy, uh, religious battle against aliens that is going on, I guess. Then uh, there's the whole, (laughs) yeah, I know. Um, Then, of course, some people are saying that this is all just kind of maybe a publicity hoax, like that there's some sort of product or movie or show coming out that these are popping up and it's going to be tied into that. But that seems pretty elaborate. Um, In the San Francisco gate, a reporter compared it to in 2016 when the clowns were popping up all over. I love that comparison because I also was obsessed with the clowns popping up all over. I believe we talked about that on the nose, too, probably upon my suggestion. Um, Yes, the other two panelists were killed by homicidal clowns after that. So we don't really (laughs) talk about it that often. But yes, you are correct. Yeah. um, So, you know, she compared it to that and uh, saying that the town in uh, California that had the third monolith did it because they saw a trend hitting and someone took notice of that and wanted to get in on this at the ground floor and get one up in their town to grab attention. Um, And then uh, it's just if you go on Reddit, which I actually recommend, I mean, this is (laughs) if you go if you go spend an hour on Reddit and look up the monolith, you're really going to be in for a great weekend at home. <laughs> uh, there, there are theories, though, that it is an artist. Uh, this contemporary artist, uh, McCracken, I yes, believe, yes, yeah. John McCracken, mm-hmm. he uh, <clears throat> he apparently did installation art like this. And even though he passed away, he did say in an interview once that he wanted to leave artwork in remote places to be discovered after his death. And they huh. interviewed his son, and his son said, "Well, you never know." Hmm. So there oh. are all sorts of theories, including. Real art theories, alien conspiracy theories. And Ka- uh, Carolyn, what do we think about the theory that this was a, a prop or something on Westworld and it just oh, didn't get collected by the prop department at the end of shooting or something? I mean, that could have been a good theory, but it doesn't explain the other two. Hmm. Like All if right. it had been a standalone in Utah, sure, yeah. maybe. Um, 
So, Rebecca, I think there's sort of two questions, one of which Carolyn is working way too hard on answering, which is sort of what is this thing? Where did it come from? And then the other question is, why do we care? Uh, and, and I mean, I think there are a lot of life affirming reasons why we might care. But I'm wondering, A, Rebecca, if you care and B, if so, why you think people do. I mean, I care from a sci-fi standpoint. Like, I want to know if this is the harbinger of the aliens about to arrive and end us all, take us out of our misery, which I'd be fine with at this point. Um, I also care if it's an art thing. I think it's kind of cool to get the whole world on the same page, interested in something. Um, it kind of reminds me of James Terrell, who does some fantastic sculptural pieces that are kind of larger than life. He plays a lot with light. They're very kind of surreal and otherworldly. You know, we have a fascination with someone like Banksy, who is mysterious and has stuff that pops up with seemingly no origin, just out of the ether. So I think it's a nice distraction from everything else that's going on. I think it's aggressively 2020. Like, of course, there's obelisks now. Like, what else? We've got plague. We've got all of everything else. So what's next? Blood rain? Hmm. Locusts? I, I will add my two cents to this and say at one point uh, I was working very reluctantly uh, I, on a book about Connecticut curiosities that somebody had hired me to work on. And I ultimately decided I couldn't stand doing it anymore, but uh, and got two other writers to take it over. But while I was working, I can't even remember how I stumbled across this, but I stumbled across an allegation in multiple places that in the woods of East Haddam somewhere was what was sometimes referred to as a giant stone Neolithic clown head, possibly from oh, outer space. No. Uh, and so I spent quite a bit of time <laughs> dropping around in the woods of Eastern Connecticut. And every once in a while, my one or two sources, uh, who I may have been punking me the entire time, would sort of say, no, it's in those woods. You know, you have to go here and stuff. And then this young guy, Ben Cowper, later came forward because I had mentioned the fact that I'd looked for it. He claimed that he found it. And uh, I don't know. But there's sort of a way in which we do like the idea that life is full of curiosities, that everything isn't, you know, a CVS or a Boston market or, you know, that, <laughs> that this kind of, you know, very repetitious DNA code of American commercial suburban life uh, is not all there is. And, and, and Carolyn, I do think to whatever extent people want to know what this is or care anyway that it is there, there's at least that suggestion that not everything is settled, not everything, you know, is planned out in some corporate office. The most disappointing th theory of the ones that you talked about would be the one where they're actually, you know, about to debut some product that's tied to oh. this somehow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that it's I think that we are fascinated by something like this right now because we are living in a world with so much chaos and uncertainty and all of the anxiety that goes with that. Uh, so I think that that, to me, I, I, I mean, I would have been fascinated by this whenever. I, I love weird, weird stuff like this is is just fascinating. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that it, there is any way that this is some sort of marketing scheme. That would be a really impressive, like Netflix would have to have something real big coming out uh, to be doing something like that. But I, I so for art, art wise, though, um, you know, there was an article about this that talked about with land art and, you know, works of sculpture that are designed to be in a specific location, like in a desert or, you know, be being built around a forest. And uh, I, 
I'm fascinated with it from that angle too. Although I wish they weren't just disappearing. Well, like, the, di- the disappearing part is interesting too. And Rebecca, I don't know. There's been so many iterations of this. I don't know how current uh, any of us can possibly be. But I read this article about this these four guys who turned up and kind of tipped over the monolith and then dismantled it. And there was somebody else there who had been taking pictures with a drone and then somebody else Mm -hmm. with a camera phone. And then these guys turned out to be led by this person who I guess is sort of a famous adventurer who was part of Madonna's uh, halftime show in the 2012 <laughs> yeah, Olympics. That and, is okay, the yeah, best. Carol, since you're recognizing all of this, and I'll just sort of put one, say one more thing about it, and then uh, you guys can riff on it a little bit. I'm going to go back to you, Carolyn, because you clearly <laughs> know this particular story. Far so more th- than I do. So this guy, who's like a base jumper and a slackliner and sort of part of this kind of outdoor adventure community, he, he was basically, I mean, if... He apparently did do it, and he did it because he didn't think people should be. I mean, it's really kind of created a lot of of people gawking, showing up at this very wild, remote area, tromping around looking for this thing, you know, which it, there's not like there's signs guiding you to it or anything. And he just thought it was sort of bad for that whole environment to have something that was attracting that kind of looky-loo uh, interest. So, uh, but Carolyn, to that uh, extent, it is like they're trying to make sure there is a Netflix movie about this. Yeah, uh, (laughs) this guy claims that these he didn't want it there in Utah. We're talking about the monolith in Utah, that he felt that people were flocking to it to go see it and take pictures with it. And it was going to disturb the natural land and cause risk to the to to the environment with environmental issues. And it's my understanding that he also had pled guilty in court to he was like hindering an investigation into base jumping Mm -hmm. um or something like that and he had some fine and was i don't i don't know he he is uh he is a character i am sure um he was also banned from the hospital where he works because of sexual harassment oh wait a minute no that's the next segment i I got confused (laughs) all right Uh, anyway continue yeah, so I I've just uh, I, I was confused by his involvement in general and the fact that there was somehow a Madonna connection with the fact that he was the one who uh, performed or did he perform or do the he he designed the rigging or or performed no, for the he, halftime he, he, show he performed yeah he was up there on okay this, yeah I don't know. you have to learn I, about all kinds of things so we're yeah, also there, getting we're getting a a, a text. Uh, not a text, a, a, twi- a tweet that says the monoliths are a Tesla promotion stunt, appearing in disappearing objects, stainless steel, just like their truck, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, Rebecca, I think we all will be very disappointed if that's the case. Especially if it's is some like Elon Musk yeah, invention. Ugh. Um, but yeah, that I'd does seem very on brand for him. Yeah. Although, yeah, I mean, I'd be more yeah, okay yeah, if cool. it was like a Netflix movie or something. Like if there was a you know, some sort of film that this was connected to. And this was, I don't think that that's what it is, but I would not want this to be some Elon Musk stunt. (laughs) I mean, I think the reason that it probably isn't, at least not the first one, um, is first of all, you know, if, if I were going to try to do something like that, I don't think that it would be intuitively clear to me or really to anybody that this would work the way that it's working, you know, that I'm going to put some silvery looking triangular prismic object somewhere in the desert and people are going to go just 
nuts about it. Um, I just don't. I mean, I just don't think that you could possibly know that that would work that well. Um, it seems much more likely that it's something like that. That artist uh, uh, who you know who hoped maybe people would find things of his way way later. Um, all right, so I want to leave uh, quite a bit of time here for, for. Well, does anybody else have a, a final word they would like to say about the monolith? Carolyn, the, mon- the, mon- <laughs> the monolith is listening. Uh, all right, I, so, I'm excited yeah. to see where this goes next. I want to know where the next one pops up. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm rooting. I'm rooting for Connecticut. I'm rooting well, I mean, for now, just I, don't you just think copycats are just going to do this now that it's just like, you know, you're just going to start. That's what happened them. with the clowns. Right. Yeah. Copycat yeah. clown killers. Um, yeah. So I just think now, I mean, everybody who has any spare time and owns a four or five cans of silver spray paint. Uh, they're, they're hard at work on these things. Uh, all right, we're going to take a little break so we'll have plenty of time to talk about the undoing. All right, we're back. And before you lunge to turn down the volume knob on your radio, uh, I'm going to promise you that we will not spoil uh, the undoing for you. Uh, Obviously, our guests are immersed in this. They have discussed it at length uh, on their podcast, uh, and they have lots to say about it. Uh, And one reason we're not going to spoil it is because I'm not quite all the way through. Uh, I'm on five of the six episodes. So uh, Rebecca Castellani handles social media marketing and event planning for Quiet Corner Communications. Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance are with us. They do Try host with Teresa Kramer, the Big Little Lies, the Big Little Podcast, which uh, you can find wherever podcasts are sold, uh, and um, they do discuss this. So, um, yes, we have a six-part HBO miniseries. Its finale was last Sunday. Um, it, its main executive producers are David Kelly, uh, the long-running television auteur, uh, Susan Suzanne Beyer, who's a Danish uh, film director, uh, and Nicole Kidman. Uh, Kelly wrote every episode. Buyer directed every episode. Uh, Kidman is the show's star. I didn't realize this until just now, but she actually sings the theme song, which is <laughs> Dream Dream a Little Dream of Me. Um, and um, it's based on a novel. Um, okay, I've said enough. Uh, let's hear a little bit from this. The, I think the conversation that we're about to hear is the conversation uh, in episode four where the title is actually said. I think that part of it isn't in there, but there's kind of this moment where uh, Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, who plays her husband, Jonathan, uh, are having this conversation uh, somewhere, I think, along uh, the Hudson River uh, in a, a park, and they start to say the title of the movie in a way that I thought it was felt a little on the nose, pardon the expression. Anyway, uh, here's part of that conversation. We'll get through this. We'll get through this. Somehow. We will. We will. We will. Not in this together. We're not. You stand accused of a crime that maybe you did, maybe you didn't do. And I'm going to play the role, the assigned role of the wife. And that's it. Well, then I'll just pray that I make my way back to you. You know what? We had you and I was... It's too big to undo just but like you that. Did. I didn't. You managed to undo it, didn't you? 
feel for you. It doesn't matter because my mind is stronger than my heart. You know that about me. And while you may not be a murderer, you're... You're not my husband. You'll never be my husband. All right, so there you go. There's the title of the movie. Um, so somewhere out there in the world is a person who does not like looking at Nicole Kidman. I don't know who that person could possibly be, but whoever you are, don't watch this series because a lot of the series just involves kind of looking at Nicole Kidman, <laughs> um, which most of us are, I think, quite happy to do. Uh, so let's just begin here, Rebecca. Uh, this is we, we were talking just a little bit right before we went on the air. And I said, you know, this it, it seems to hover between really glorious trash and an invitation by Kelly and Byer to us to say, no, no, this is actually a significant enough human drama so that it's a little bit more than just kind of a pleasing way just while away six hours or however long it is. Uh, have you made a decision about that or is that an unimportant distinction? No, I think it's a very important distinction. I think that's what the whole impetus behind Big Little Lies was, was this was a show uh, that seemingly seemed like high quality trash. I mean, it was about... <laughs> the struggles of wealthy people in a beautiful vista of a bunch of people that you really can't relate to your average American can't relate to. It kind of hits the same notes as some of the like early two thousands trash TV that was popular. You, know, you think about stuff like the OC and gossip girl, people really enjoyed getting into the lives of wealthy people and their wealthy struggles, but he's clever with that. You know, it's, it's an appealing facade that allows Kelly to investigate you know, macro things that we're all affected by, sisterhood, betrayal, what happens behind closed doors. I mean, these are universal things that he's able to articulate in the exterior of it kind of seeming like frothy, you know, well-produced soap. And I think it's it's cleverer than that. And I think Kelly really knows what he's doing by creating these shows that seem one way, but then when you get into them, they resonate with you, even if you are just a poor millennial in Connecticut. Yes. I mean, there's certainly a lot of um, uh, wealth porn, affluence porn uh, in this, uh, and that is also melded with a kind of lovingly textured uh, cinematography or videography or something of the Upper West Side of New York, uh, which the movie embraces as eagerly as the characters frequently embrace one another. Um, Carolyn, how about you? Where does this lie? Is this sort of just a, an enjoyable way to, uh, you know, spend an evening and consume a, a glass of wine or two? Or are we really invited to look more deeply into the human heart? Well, so I think I, I think I had struggled uh, with deciding where I fell on that, because since we were doing our big little podcast with this, we were analyzing it to death. And this show kind of positioned itself in a way that like there were a lot of aspects that when you're watching it, you could really, you know, look at and analyze and look for deeper meaning. Um, but in and I liked the show a lot. Uh, but I think if I, I also think it could have just been a fun watch to, yeah, just be watching with some wine, just some good. A, you know, a nice, a, a good escape. Yeah. So it was I took a guess to... about that. I took a guess. <laughs> that you'd be watching this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if it's garbage, I'll watch it. Um, and this wasn't garbage because it did have, it did have things that made you think, and it was sort of designed to do that. Uh, 
but in also then it did kind of I feel without giving away anything in the end, and we talked about this on our podcast that like it had all these things that sort of set you up to really like analyze and think about things. And uh, in some ways, then it kind of like let you down. Like I felt like I spent a lot of time thinking hard about something that I realized come the end was a glass of wine and chillax show. Um, but I, I think it does that very well. I think that, you know, you don't need to go into this assuming that you are uh, there to break something down and and solve life's mysteries through the undoing. I think it is just really good, well done, watchable TV with yeah. very great performances. Most of yes. the performances that I think were stellar were secondary characters. Yes, I, I would agree. Although I also think the leads don't disappoint. They um, don't disappoint at all. But I think that they are challenged greatly by actors whose names we haven't even heard of yet or have in smaller capacity. And yeah. I think are really going to be become... I, I think that this show really launched, I think, a lot of people. Mm. Although me. Edgar Edgar Ramirez, who's one of the standouts, is Detective Joe Mendoza. And he's been around for a long time. He's he done has a lot been. of really interesting work. So, um, uh, we exclusively he, refer to him as Detective Sexy. Detective Sexy, all I, right. I, I coined that term for him. I do, I do love him in this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just also want to talk about... So my fear about this, and, and I have sort of a just collective ambivalence about David Kelly. I rarely turn down a chance to watch something that, that is part of his oeuvre. But when I'm watching it, I often feel as though it's... I don't know. It, 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 as I said to you guys in an email, I mean, it often feels like, and this in particular feels like a melange of a lot of other things that I've seen, yeah. you know, and th there are certainly elements uh, of the affair uh, in it. There are elements mm -hmm. uh, of, there's even a little bit of succession there and the character played by, oh, yeah. by, by Donald mm -hmm. Sutherland. Uh, I mean, I, I could go on and on. Presumed Innocent is probably the movie that it most resembles. That's from a while back. Uh, but I mean, one could go on and on and say, wow, I've just sort of seen all this stuff, you know? So are they making it into a distinctive enough uh, product so that the effort was worth it? And I guess to borrow from the courtroom drama itself, my jury is kind of out about this, <laughs> Rebecca. I, I'm, I'm wondering what you're thinking about that. Yeah, so no spoilers. Okay, um, no spoilers, yep. So this is tricky to talk about because my feelings changed. Mm -hmm. But if I'm talking about it on a whole, I feel like what elevated this from just being a melange of the shows you described is the treatment of the character's interiority. So we are very much confused throughout much of the undoing about what we're seeing. Is this the whole truth? Is this perception? We had a whole episode where we debated about whether Nicole Kidman's character, Grace, was experiencing flashbacks or fantasies. It's kind of indistinguishable. And for me, that was really interesting. That's what I really enjoyed about the show, is that it felt like there was some unreliable narration going on that went deeper than just the whodunit. And I think the, one of the show's weaker aspects is that at the end of every episode, it really sets you up to think or, I mean, throughout the episodes, it, you think one character's in the hot seat and is your prime suspect, and then by the end, there's some big reveal that sets up another character to be the prime suspect. And that felt a little, you know, emotionally manipulative, for lack of a better word. But what redeemed that was there was so much about the characters that seemed confused and 
distorted. I mean, it almost like was like a funhouse mirror at sometimes. You were you weren't sure what you were getting was real. And it kind of like that uncertainty of your footing as a viewer made it a really interesting show and, and different from some of the other David E. Kelly shows we've seen and different from the shows we've described, you know, Succession, The Night Of, Big Little Lies. These were all pretty linear dramas and dealing with characters and it, it was character driven where this show really feels like it's dealing mostly in interiority and the things that are unspoken, not the things that are said and done. You know, I you know, I want to go back to the acting here, which I I, I think the acting is just a pleasure. And uh, at least in this particular case, neither David Kelly nor the director, Suzanne Byers, said no to very many acting choices. <laughs> I think these people were kind of allowed to do the things that they do well. And to me, if anybody's a revelation, and there are a lot of great performances in Sutherland, who's completely left out of control here is just a joy to watch when he's left out of control uh, and to do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> I mean, he's just pretty riveting and fun. You know, to me, in a, in a way, and I, I think Nicole Kidman has long ago established that she's just a first-rate actor and, you know, a joy to watch. To me, the revelation a little bit is Hugh Grant. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, although I, I, I did see that one thing that was based on, based on that British scandal with a guy from Parliament where maybe he kind of went away... Uh, from from character, but you know here you you know Carolyn is a little bit less minty fresh. You know, I mean, um, um, you, you know what I mean about Hugh Grant. He's usually you know, I, uh, and, I, I, yes, I get it. Yes, I get and, <laughs> right. And and uh, the other thing about it is, you know, since Hugh Grant's normal acting state is to have his eyes darting all over the place uh, mm-hmm. and his arms kind of twitching uh, and his hands moving in strange ways, playing a possibly guilty man is probably not that difficult for him. But you know, <laughs> we literally he, just said, is this Hugh Grant giving a fantastic performance or is he just deranged? Right. It really does seem like this is yeah. kind of his real so character. Hugh, Hugh Grant. To me, I never thought anything about him as an actor. I mean, I just think of him as like Bridget Jones' diary and, you know, love actually. Like I just you just kind of put him in the box of rom-com and and we haven't really seen too much out of him all that recently. And this, I think, is the performance of his career, in my opinion. Like I really was. And and he built it throughout the I think it's in the last couple episodes and definitely the last episode, I think Hugh Grant just owns. And he, he there are some amazing choices I think he made as an actor with his face, with his expressions. Uh, I, I mean, I thought he was absolutely captivating and really intriguing. And, uh, I, and I just think that, you know, again, without giving away spoilers, in the last episode, I was... I, I was jaw dropped with his performance. I, I just and there's, say... there's actually footage of Alex and I watching it live. We <laughs> live streamed it for the podcast, and you can see us be jaw dropped. <laughs> right. Um, and the footage and... includes you guys going outside and dismantling a monolith too. So, um, so I just wanted to just share a little sort of behind the curtain stuff. So as we're doing these shows, particularly now that we've gone to remote locations and can't see each other and stuff like that, we communicate a lot on on Slack. And so I was trying to remember the name of this thing where Hugh Grant really did give a very, very memorable and not particularly Hugh Grant-like performance. And so I typed on Slack, what was the thing about the name of the thing about the British gay sex scandal? And John, Jonathan McNichol typed back, a very English scandal. Yes. <laughs> he said he said it's basically just called what you just said. Um, oh, so, but he's really, really good in that. And I think he really is good in this. And the whole 
I think, you know, we, we did sort of put him in a little box for a while that, yeah, he's that guy who's the kind of the super charming, twitchy prime minister who's crazy about Natalie uh, and does the Tom Cruise dancing inside the prime minister's mm-hmm. residence. And, you know, he really is a lot more than that, I think. I, I also have to say, and I, Caroline, I don't know if you remember this, but I mean... I feel like doing this thing, which is all about being held up to public ridicule and contempt because of a sex scandal, it seems mm-hmm. like the kind of project I wouldn't want to take if I were you. Right? <laughs> yeah. Ahead, I, I, but I think that maybe that is what helped his performance. He, I think that he does tap into something. I, I, I do think, because we joked about that on the podcast, as Rebecca mentioned, like, is this Hugh Grant playing more of an accurate Hugh Grant uh, is this are there pieces of him that he was able to bring to this? And I think, yes, yes, he was. The other actors that I thought were super in this, Lily Robb, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, I think is is great. And the little boy who played their son, Noah mm-hmm. Jupe, yeah, who uh, I when Googling him because I was wowed by his performance, I found out that he was the kid in A Quiet Place. Quiet Place yeah. I don't even remember him in that movie, but I hated that movie so much that I think I just blocked it from my um, from my mind, but he, I think was great in this too. And, uh, then the woman who played both of the women who played the lawyers yes. were yeah. spectacular. Noma Dumaswini is just a star. She's played, uh, Hermione in the yep. terrible <laughs> JK Rowling cursed child production, but she is absolutely just, she, a, she really is. Terrific. I, let's just say a word about her too. This is this a woman, uh, she's British. Uh, she has uh, an African last name. She has this incredible ability to kind of slow down a moment, you know, mm. and, and really sort of get you focused. And I think she's very much a stand in for us for most of the series, too, because her big question is, what are people withholding from me? What are my clients withholding from me? What don't I know? What am I not being told? What's an illusion here? She's asking all of the questions that that we are asking, and she's doing it in this remarkable way. I mean, I really you know, can't wait to see uh, other stuff that she does. Um, and but you know, Rebecca, I also wanted to ask this. Okay, and and one name that we that we haven't mentioned yet is Matilda De Angelis, uh, who plays mm. Elena mm. Alves. Uh, she is uh, the woman. Well, she's. I, I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say she's the the victim in this story. Uh, and um, she is this Italian actress with a kind of Modigliani face too. And what I. And there's even this kind of moment where she and Nicole Kidman early in the series exchange a kiss on an elevator, which uh, is uh, an interesting place to go. But what I want to ask about is like David Kelly is sort of the ultimate high end male gaze guy. I think he just he loves he loves beautiful women. He believes that we should all love beautiful women and we should be given the chance to look at them for long periods of time. Uh, And somehow or other, I don't find his, I mean, he kind of has lived it all out by marrying Michelle Pfeiffer. But, um, but, you know, I just feel like this is, it's not as unpardonable as it would be with some other, I mean, this is not Bertolucci, you know, there's sort of a, just a way in which he does it with so much love and such a visual caress that, but I'm wondering, I'm a man saying all this. So who cares what I think about this? I'm interested in what you two think, Rebecca. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I find that his aesthetic choices and the the design, the fashion all sort of alleviate my unease when anyone uses the word male gaze. I find that it's, 
it's sort of a universal gaze. Like these people are so gorgeous. The settings are so gorgeous that it's pandering almost to everyone. Like who wouldn't want to ogle at Nicole Kidman in a shower? Who wouldn't want to ogle at Matilda DeAngelis? I mean, she's beautiful and she doesn't speak much in this. She's very much, uh, you know, a figure that's silent, but I don't feel as though she's a prop. I feel that she was very present even when she wasn't on screen. I mean, the central mystery is really the only plot point. I mean, in Big Little Lies, we were talking about how there are all these different side plots and it was a much richer, bigger world. But this was really sharp and focused just on the central mystery, what happened to Ellen Alves. And so I don't find that what you're describing necessarily is the male gaze so much as it is the gaze into this incredibly privileged, beautiful world that is actually just a guise for all of these terrible betrayals and murder plots happening beneath the surface. So I, I never get the vibe from him that it's done just gratuitously. Like it, it does feel intentional. It does feel like that's part of the plot is that we're sort of voyeurs peering into this world that we wouldn't necessarily have access to otherwise if it weren't for this show. Carolyn, you get the last word, but it's going to be about 60 seconds. All right. Well, I agree that I don't think that this show is has I think the first episode, though, does utilize that male gaze in a way. And my theory on that is if a woman was watching it with her male partner and she wanted, you know, it helped it would help engage a male viewer in a gross like male gaze way. Believe it or not, I think that there was some of that. I think the first episode involved a lot more of that male gaze the the shots with Nicole Kidman and uh, the Elena the Elena character or Elena character um, I think it was much more uh, I want to say like salacious in the first episode to like draw in the viewer and then I think we move past that for sure uh, although we do have to give a shout out if we're talking about the gaze on Nicole Kidman to that green coat which is again something if you have a second to go through the internet and get into Ooh. if you're not aware you can uh, you can talk it's a about fiery the debate. Coat. it's dividing the world yeah. yes as Vogue magazine says it is either an exemplar of boho chic or a vestige of middle earth depending on your personal <laughs> taste all right we have to take a little break uh, go look at the green coat uh, on your own time we'll be back with some recommendations All right, we're back. I have to go fast. So many thanks to Kat Pastor uh, for uh, keeping us uh, on track all week long there in the studios. And thanks to Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this particular episode of uh, The Nose. Uh, we're going to make some recommendations. We might not have time for me to make one. I have nothing useful to contribute anyway. But uh, Rebecca Castellani, you get us started. So mine are both Netflix streaming gems, which uh, plays into what we've discussed. My first one is Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7 on Netflix. It is absolutely fantastic. I wasn't familiar about the story or the players, and it is just a wonderful movie about protests in the Vietnam and the subsequent trial and all the racism of the police, and it's just so well done. Sasha Baron Cohen gives an incredible performance, so I highly recommend. And also on Netflix, in the same sort of vein, but a true story, well, this is a, that was a true story, but an adaptation, a documentary uh, called Trial 4, which details the unlawful conviction of a young black man in Boston in the 90s, and it deals with police corruption in the 90s. And it's just unbelievable. The lead uh, 
prosecutor, Rosemary Scarpiccio, is just, I would die for her. So I highly, highly recommend Trial 4 on Netflix and The Trial of the Chicago 7, also on Netflix. All right. Uh, Carolyn Payne, uh, what have you got in your uh, bag of tricks? All right. So um, if you were watching The Undoing live on HBO, you may have stumbled into Murder on Middle Beach, which came on after The Undoing. It is a four-part documentary series. Uh, The fourth episode is on this Sunday. Um, And it is about a murder that happened here in Connecticut uh, about a decade ago. And it is a documentary made by the victim's son, Madison Hamburg. Uh, He was a film student at SCAD uh, when his mother was murdered. And he started this as his uh, thesis film and then continued it on. And it got picked up by HBO. And it is a fascinating watch. And uh, I don't remember this murder taking, I don't remember hearing about this in the news, but it is, it is so, it is such a well done documentary and such an interesting perspective to see the filmmaker be essentially also the victim and trying to like get at the root of his own family's crisis. Um, And then since we mentioned the creepy clowns, another great documentary is called Wrinkles the Clown and it's on Hulu. And it's a documentary that came out last year about uh, one of those creepy clowns. Um, and it's really, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, so if you want to look back at the creepy clowns that, uh, once plagued this earth, this one is a, is a fascinating watch. (laughs) Um, I will very, very quickly endorse the night manager, a TV series was directed by the same director as the undoing, uh, the Danish director, Suzanne Byers. Uh, it is a more taught uh, I think it's fair to say thriller than uh, The Undoing is. Uh, fun fact, little Danny Jupe, who uh, plays the boy in this thing, was a uh, much littler boy, the son of the Hugh Laurie character in The Night Manager. But uh, anyway, it's um, it's terrific. And if you haven't seen it yet, I should have looked up whether or not it's streaming anywhere. If you get a chance, watch the whole thing. Everybody in it is great. So are our panelists today, Rebecca Castellani and Carolyn Payne. Uh, and they also have a big little podcast. Check that out. If you really want to know more about the green coat and what people think about it that would be the place to go Uh, and you would learn so many other things as well it's not a podcast about coats not in particular 